0: Words of our, my, my, our hearts and the meditations of our hearts always be acceptable in your sight, O God, our creator, redeemer, and sustainer. Amen. The gospel reading today is from Luke chapter 1, verses 68 to 79. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has looked down favorably on his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a mighty Savior for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke through the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we would be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Thus he has shown the mercy promised to our ancestors and has remembered his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our ancestor Abraham, to grant us that we, being rescued from the hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the forgiveness of their sins. By the tender mercy of our God, the dawn from on high will break upon us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death Got our feet into the way of peace. The Gospel of the Lord. Be <laughs> God. Well, first of all, I need to correct Bob because uh, he spoke way too kindly of me. <laughs> <laughs> we go way back to that early time when I first came back to Waco to practice medicine and. I was just having an insatiable curiosity about some things in my life and some readings I have been doing, and I read this little flyer that came in the mail in this adult ed class that Bob was teaching, and, and as he said, that was the beginning of a remarkable friendship and journey and parallel interest and conversations. But my history with Lakeshore goes back before that. I was actually a member here in the mid-60s with my college roommate. We drove all the way over from Martin Hall at Baylor to worship here at Lakeshore and uh, Dan Cushman, some of you may remember that of a certain age, I think he actually taught a Sunday school class here for some years after that. It's always interesting to think about a worshiping community in the context, not only the way we see ourselves, but the way others see us. And I can tell you now from a former member and a lover of Lakeshore and the people here, that you all are known as being a beacon of light to this community. Your, Your witness, your stability, your faithfulness, your presence have touched people in all denominations and in all faiths. Of that history, you can be proud and I think it is an ongoing challenge not to bear that as you move forward to a new time in your faith life together, but to draw on the long, long history of a presence in the city of Waco. I actually, as I moved back to Waco and got, after I met Bob, got involved with several of your members in a men's philosophy club for seven or eight years with with Bob and Bill Bellinger and um, Roger Painter and Ray Cannon, uh, others that met monthly to ponder the various things that people struggle with, belief, uh, doubt, uh, community issues, world issues, so that ongoing presence of Lakeshore uh, has continued to ripple through my life. Today we are come here to celebrate a rather peculiar liturgical notion and that's of Christ the King. And actually in researching it, my wife Gail pointed out, it's a fairly modern term. Christ the King Sunday was actually started in 1925 by uh, Pope Pius XI. And it's the last Sunday of what we used to call ordinary time before Advent. So it's kind of those quirky, funny things about liturgy and time that never really made much sense to me. We go from the Advent, where we anticipate something happening in 40 days, the birth of a child, to celebration backwards in time to kingship, and then forward in times to the end of time. It's a circular, kind of peculiar way we think about what Christ means, not only eternally, but in our lives. One of the things that we think about when we think about kingship is power and authority. And I was thinking back this week, I wish my daughter was here. I told her I was going to take a little poke of fun at her. But Jessica, when she was five years old, some of you know my daughter. Gail and I just moved back to Waco. And we had gone to Mexico for a brief uh, vacation before I started work. And my mother, who was this fiery redhead who brooked no uh, tolerance from mouthy kids, uh, called me crying. She said, I never thought a five-year-old could reduce me to tears. And Jessica said, you're not the boss of me. (laughs) Any, Any of your kids ever told you that? My mother didn't know what to do because if I'd have said that I'd have been taken to the woodshed. But we think of kingship as the boss of us. The one who orders us around. This kind of kingship that we're touching upon today is a different kind of kingship. And to understand it I also think we have to understand something about our national identity. We're in a time of thanksgiving. This is the Sunday before Thanksgiving, right? This kind of kingship is not about authority, but yet we Americans have been raised in this notion of rugged individualism. We're seduced by our cultural myths to think that we are the kings. We're the author of our own fate, the captain of our ship, the master of our soul. We have bought into this notion that we don't need any authority figure we push back against the notion of kingship based on our national trajectory. So the notion of kingship doesn't really set well with us. It never has, and it never will. We see that play out in our cultural discussions today. We take the American story of rugged individualism and autonomy, and it becomes an altar to a form of, I think, idol- idolatry. The biblical story of kingship is very different. To really understand it, we have to step back to the Old Testament story of what the kingdom of Israel was struggling with as it was served as it was trying to establish its identity surrounded by other kings. The biblical story of kingship takes the notion of contracts and turns it into a covenant. A contract is simply something that defines us in relationship to somebody else. It's a legal terminology used by Babylonian kings that the king had a contractual set of obligations to enter upon. And the story of Moses in Mount Sinai and later of David and later of Jesse and later of Jesus changed that notion of contractual obligations to a sense of covenant which embodies a set of mutual sharing common journey, of common hopes, of common dreams, common obligations. It changes the notion of me and you from a transactional relationship to a relational relationship. So our transactional promises become a set of relational obligations. That's a profound distinction because it It means that we enter into something that's fluid and organic, not set in stone. It evolves. It has a history. It has the ability to grow and nurture and feed each other. To answer the question of who is our king, I think it's first maybe good to answer who is not our king. And I would submit that we have all kinds of kings in our lives that that sway us. Whether it's the political stuff we hear today, whether it's power or authority or financial kings, even our own egos can be a king that claim a stake on our lives that is not healthy for us. I invited a man named Will Spong, one of the great men or friend of mine, to a retreat I had at Baylor 20 or so years ago for the Medical Humanities program. and As unusual in some of these retreats like this, students get very upfront about issues that they're concerned about. And particularly for a lot of students, the issue is what I would call salvation anxiety. In medicine, what does it mean to have a dying patient who's not a Christian? Baylor students worry about stuff like that. Pre-med students worry about it. And Will, in his gentle way, he had a big white beard. He looked kind of like Amos way I envisioned Amos and he would say you know God is God and you're not (laughs) (laughs) let God be God that brings the question is how do we view this Christ King and I think there's two options I'd like to give to you and being a good Anglican I'm going to focus in on the middle way The first is that of a a watchmaker of Aristotle. God is the God who created the world and set it free to go on about its ways. The evolutionary God, the big bang theory that whatever God was may or may not have existed before the big bang, but the universe is set in stone and is going to proceed in its way with no interference. That's okay. Pretty distant doesn't very, sound very loving or gracious. But the other extreme is to view God as the bluebird who sits in my shoulder, telling me everything's hunky dory. You know, the song from Uncle Remus, "Zippity Doodah." God is the God who sits bluebird who sits on my shoulder and gives me a parking place when I'm too tired to walk very far. The God who micromanages our lives, picks out our spouses gets me the right job, promises me fiduciary wealth. That doesn't appeal to me. This God that Christ has come to teach us something about is what Tehard of Chardin called the omega point. Not only the beginning and the end, not only the alpha and omega, but the Christ who is in the world today, in the midst of our messiness and our brokenness and our sins, hopes and our dreams is the faithful God who is there with us through all of that you see this all gets back I think eventually to some of the things that Bob and I have talked about in this notion of theodicy if God is God and if God is all powerful and is all good why is there so much suffering and pain in the world can't God do something about that The Christ message for me is Christ the King, not as that we have to wait down the line to the end of all our eternity to experience Christ in the middle of our despair. It's here with us. It's always with us. It's not something we have to wait for. It's not something we have to dream for. That putting off of Christ's eternal kingship to the end of time me is a way of avoiding responsibility for what we do and what we believe today. No author I know has struggled with this notion of Christ as a king in the midst of our brokenness more than Walker Percy. Walker Percy was a famous physician and writer who never really practiced medicine due to getting tuberculosis, but he wrote a fantastic novel called The Second Coming. And there are three characters in The Second Coming that I'd like to sketch out for you because each are worthy of a a sermon into themselves. The protagonist is a man named Will. He's a middle-aged, successful businessman who takes his wealth and moves to a golf course to work on his golf game. But he's broken and hurting and confused and knows there's something bigger and better than that out there. And like a lot of people, he starts getting the shanks. He starts hitting the ball right. Into the woods instead of down the middle of the fairway. And in his confusion, he stumbled across a greenhouse with a young woman who's a refugee from a mental institution named Allie. And they struck up this unlikely friendship in this greenhouse, which becomes a symbol, of course, of the Garden of Eden and her brokenness. And they come across a Catholic priest who's plays the role of what I would call the holy fool. It's not an uncommon theme in literature. The crazy mixed up priest figure who drinks too much whiskey but reflects back to the community a little bit of what they should see. So this triangulation of the story between the holy fool, the broken, depressed, middle aged man, and the young woman who has no memory of anything before her electric shock therapy converge And as the story evolves, the will comes to see a remarkable thing that Christ doesn't come as king at the end of time. He looks at the priest, he grabs his hand, and his skin is falling away, and he looks into the face of the Holy Spirit and says, is this just a sign of things to come, or is God here in the moment, here and now? I want it. I want it now and I must have God not in the future but here in the midst of love and that's finally what the Christ event is talking about that's what our kingship is talking about not not something that may happen a hundred billion years from now at the end of biological time but time in the here and now where Christ lives I had an incident a year or so ago, and I wasn't gonna tell this, but I think I'm going to. I was hospitalized for the first time in my life. I told my doctor, it's the first time I've ever spent the night in the hospital that I wasn't working. Uh, I developed septic shock. I got through it pretty good, and I didn't realize how serious it was until the day I was sent home, and the doctor told me, he said, you know, you had a 70% chance of dying. I said, why didn't you tell me that? I might have done something different. But since that day, I've struggled with the notion of the divine presence in the here and now. It seemed a far off possibility that I needed a mental refresher course. On. I needed to be touched again and said, right here, right now, Mike, pay attention. I was going fishing one day. This summer, I fish on Colorado. I'm a part-time fly fishing guide. And I was driving up river. It's a 13-mile stretch of a road. Beautiful river. I've driven it a 1,000 times. And my, I was daydreaming. I was wondering what was going to be rising, what bug to town, what the trout were going to be like. Were there anybody in my favorite spot? The thing fishermen think about the worst. And I don't know how to describe this except because I think words are not adequate. At about two and a half miles upriver, the light changed and I drove for two miles through a tunnel of holiness. I saw a river that I'd never seen before even though I'd seen it 25,000 times. I saw light in a way I'd never seen it before. I saw leaves in a way I'd never seen it before. And I knew then the kingship of God is in the here and now. It was a holy presence of the divinity in the midst of the world. It reminded me so much of the famous phrase from Julian of Norwich, who took a hazelnut in her hand and said, What is this? And he said, I'm going to read it to you. And he showed me a little thing lying in the palm of my hand, as it seemed. And it was as round as any ball, and I looked upon it with the eye of my understanding, and I thought, what may this be? And the answer was, it is all that is made. I marveled at how it might last, for I thought it might suddenly have fallen to nothing for its smallness. And I was answered in my understanding, at last it lasts and ever shall be, because God loves it. And so have all things, beginning by the love of God. And in this little thing, I saw three properties. The first is that God made it. The second is that God loves it. And the third is that God keeps it. That's the mystery of Christ the King. Not a distant hope for the future, it's God breaking into the world in the here and now in communities like Lakeshore who love each other and love the world.